So hey, it's um, Zane Horowitz and the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club, and it's the first one for January uh, 2017, the new year. And, and the topic we're going to tackle today is something called um, the radar system, which is a surveillance system, which will explain how it works in the first article, that looks at a variety of opioids and how they're used and misused in, in this country. Um, RADAR stands for the Researched Abuse, Diversion, and Addiction-Related Surveillance, so they kind of made that fit somehow. Uh, the people who have put it together are um, with a grant from Purdue Farmer, who is a drug company, of course, the makers of OxyContin, and we'll talk about some of their reasons for doing that, some of the physicians and researchers involved in it whose names appear on many, if not almost all the articles, are Rick Dart at a Rocky Mountain Poison Center and um, Ted Cicero at uh, the University of Washington, St. Louis, and a variety of other people and other institutions have put together this national program, which has many parts. And the reason I'm covering it is really for twofold for our, our fellows and any other fellows who are listening. This is a, an area where um, research can be done, as we'll see almost all, all these papers came from, um, this surveillance system. And two, it, it brings up some important points, um, most of which I think we know intuitively about opiates and opiate abuse and misuse in this country. So as way of introduction, I will talk about their first article, which is called The Development of a Comprehensive Risk Management Program for Prescription Opiate Analgesics, which describes essentially uh, how the radar system works. It was published in 2007 in Pain Medicine. And in their introduction, they note that, you know, prescription opiate abuse has been a problem for over 40 years, but there was a noted sharp increase in drug abuse beginning in late 95 and extending through uh, the present time. Um, the reasons for their growth they glean from other studies are, one, that prescription drugs are relatively easily up, uh, obtained. People sort of doctor shop and show up in emergency rooms, as we all know with a variety of painful conditions that can't be verified. Heroin is illegal, as we all know, and um, because that is, will get you a ride to jail if you're found on it, if a bottle of oxycodone may not. Um, there are more socially acceptable reasons to use prescription drugs than to use intravenous drug use. Um, the other thing is you pretty much know what you're buying. It's a fixed dose and amount and purity, and there's not going to be all sorts of contaminants mixed in the product that you're using. Additionally, if heroin is unavailable and you're a heroin user, these drugs are often used either to get high or to self-medicate to treat withdrawal symptoms. And the reason that the system was put together was that there was sort of a whole hodgepodge of systems that the FDA used to monitor post-marketing surveillance, but none of them were really all that accurate or good. There's a bunch of letters uh, associated with these. I'll mention a few. There's a drug abuse warning network called DAWN. There's a treatment episode data set, TEDS. There's the adverse drug abuse monitoring, ADAM, and so on and, and so forth. Uh, a variety of databases. It really took a smattering of cases from a variety of uh, other databases and tried to report on which drugs were, were being used. So the FDA, uh, you know, based on a study, actually a pilot study, looking at tramadol misuse and diversion, um, came out with something called the Henry, Henny Report, H-E-N-N-E-Y, 
which called for better systems to manage postmarking surveillance of misuse and diverted drugs. And from that, um, essentially, this network, this project was born. Um, it was a risk management program. It was initiated by Purdue Pharma, uh, the makers of OxyContin, the brand name for um, sustained release oxycodone. And um, we'll talk about some of the things that happened with that drug as well. But clearly, it was a drug that was both in the news as being abused and perhaps preferred by abusers. So a little bit about uh, the radar system and, and how they, I think, tried to do this re in a reasonable way in some of the areas that they looked into. So they established an external advisory board that was completely independent of Purdue Pharma, the drug company itself. They brought in experts in uh, addiction, in law enforcement, in drug regulation, in epidemiology, poison centers, and they all sat on this board and they said, what do we need to look at? What should we uh, be looking to create a sensitive system to detect both focal areas of drug misuse and diversion, as well as national trends. And they based it initially on this post-marketing surveillance program that was used for tramadol. So one of the first things they used, and you'll see in many of the articles, they talk about key informants. And essentially, what this was, was a network of people who got sent a survey every quarter and they basically said, well, what are you seeing in your job and your area of expertise, whether you're a police officer or an epidemiologist or a methadone clinic, a supervisor, tell us what drugs you think people are using. And those people got reimbursed. I think the article talks about they got like $200 a quarter and a bonus if they did four quarters, things like that, for filling out these forms. So that was one form of what they looked at. But then they started branching out and looking at other things, including why it's important to us. Uh, they looked at poison center data, which we know has some limitations. Um, and they didn't just look at their own drug, which would have been satisfying the mandate from the FDA to do a post-marketing surveillance of the drug that you produce. They decided to include all Schedule II and all Schedule III opioids. Now, we can speculate, and say speculate, on why they may have done this. Part of it may have been they wanted to say, like, yeah, there's problems with our drug, but there's problems with everybody's drug. We're not alone here um, in the world. So, um, of note, oxycodone, oxycontin, lost its patent protection in the second quarter of 2004, and multiple generics came on the market. So most of these articles that look at trends try to look at the impact of that change. Um, and they refer to all of the oxycontin that are extended release forms as oxycontin, Extended release, and it's not specifically named by the brand OxyContin itself. So there's basically several parts of the system. We mentioned the key informants, which are these surveys. We mentioned the poison centers. Um, and there was also a separate survey of law enforcement agencies that um, looked at drugs that they were picking people up when they were arrested, they were being diverted, and, and asking them a similar question. Uh, so that was the third part of it. There's a long discussion about rates and what they should use as the numerator and the denominator and why each of the different things was not a perfect uh, answer. They looked at the total number of cases of abuse. They looked at, for as a numerator, they looked at the total population, which they felt was too broad of a denominator. 
Then they started looking at things like the number of kilograms of a drug dispensed as a denominator, but felt that some drugs were essentially, for lack of a better term, heavier than others. You know, uh, codeine is 60 milligrams, while morphine may be one milligram, so you can't look at total weight of the drug. So they looked at total number of prescriptions dispensed and number of patients prescribed opiates. Now there's little subtle differences between these, and they say one of the big limitations is uh, a lot of these drugs are in fact diverted, so the total number of patients prescribed a drug for legitimate reasons may not represent the number of people who are using a drug for both legitimate and less than legitimate reasons. And very arbitrarily, they came up, and they don't really define in this article, but some of the other articles talk about the user rate of, of, of the drug use, the URDD. And maybe when we get to the first article that talks about that rate, we can go into a tiny bit more detail. They said as a signal, five cases per 100,000 population, or 10 cases per 1,000 people who have a filled prescription for the drug. And literally, they admit they just pick these rates out of the air, saying if it's above that, that may be a signal and maybe an error why we have to look into it deeper than that. So again, uh, and then they go into some discussion of what the components were. They talk about uh, the key informants being health professionals, methadone clinics, um, private residential treatment centers that are non-methadone clinics, um, people who work for the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, and a variety of other key informants. And they ended up with a few hundred of these folks altogether that they sent emails to. And then from where they came back, from wherever they lived or worked, they broke everything down by this three-digit zip code to put them in little boxes throughout the United States. Um, and as far as poison centers go, poison centers, as most of us know, collect data um, as they come for call-in cases, it's a passive surveillance syndrome system, so people may not call the poison center if someone overdoses on codeine or morphine because the vast majority of docs know to, what to do with that, but they may, if it's a brand new drug, they haven't had much experience with like tramadol or something when it first came on the market. Um, and so there's a bias in what gets called in there. But they found out between their three sources of signaling, they covered 80% of the nation and uh, of 973 three-digit zip code blocks. So they felt they had a pretty good picture of what was going on nationally. And from the initial set of years, they made a few conclusions that now, I guess, seem pretty obvious, but at the time may not have been so obvious in 2005 through 2007. The first of the conclusions was that prescription drug abuse is prevalent across the country but unusually dense in the eastern portion of the United States, especially the mid-Atlantic and the states. For instance, they said California has one of the largest populations, but at least at the time, very little prescription drug use by using the three signal detectors that they were using. Now, I'll say of note, when they started doing this, they were only enrolled in 15 of the poison centers, of the now 55 poison centers that exist. Um, they've worked their way up over the years, and if we read later and later articles in their methods section, they'll say how many poison centers were online at the time. And I think it's where, Nate, correct me if I'm wrong, about 45 right I think it's at 49. 49 right now. So it's pretty good. 49 out of 55 is almost everybody. The other thing is the poison center, and I'll maybe take a second. Nate's our 
radars person for Oregon is they don't just take the raw data. They have someone sort of lay eyes on the data to make sure it's all coded accurately. So maybe you want to comment on that aspect of it. Yeah. So um, every week I basically go in and do individual toxicol searches mm -hmm. um, and look at all of the cases for each of those categories. And I think like Zane was saying, they originally just started out with opioids. However, they've now expanded to most controlled substances. So uh, in addition to most of the opioids, they're also looking for amphetamines. Um, and then methylphenidate is the other group. Um, surprisingly, though, they don't do any benzos. So it's not all controlled substances. Um, so basically what I do is I run a search um, on each individual substance and then look through, um, make sure the reason for, you know, exposure is correct, you know, like abuse, misuse, you know, therapeutic errors, um, and basically doing a double check on everything that the spies are putting in. Um, so double checking to make sure that I agree with their assessment of, you know, what's in the chart, um, plus also making sure that um, there was nothing that was missed. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, like in the follow-up notes, there'll be you know, an alcohol concentration, but alcohol wasn't listed as one of the substances. Mm. So going back and either adding in um, substances, um, sometimes also going in and changing formulations or changing doses if it got put in incorrectly initially. Um, and then after the kind of, you massage the data a little bit, then you go through and then you, I have to go through and individually in all the charts, basically de-identify any potential, you know, names and phone numbers and stuff like that for each individual chart before you, you know, send the data in aggregate. Right. And those all go to... They all go to Rocky Mountain. Denver Health, I guess, get, gets them all. All right. So that's the process. So it's more than just taking the complete raw data or the complete raw entry data from the system. So there's another level of uh, sort of accuracy creating and each poison center that participates now, nearly all of them have a site coordinator that knows exactly what Nate does here for the system. So I said the three things they found were one that drug abuse is widespread but they found some interesting uh, demographics that uh, which are really points two and three. The second one is that most of the large cities uh, have lower problems with drug abuse and more problems with heroin although they didn't look at heroin and most of the sites of abuse is located in rural suburban and small metropolitan areas. So prescription drug abuse is a problem of smaller cities and more low population states. Um, and, but they also found that pretty much their three systems of detection all sort of complemented each other. So if the key witness, key informants were high in one state for one thing, it's usually the other two modifiers, the three-digit zip codes for poison centers or uh, law enforcement all overlap. So it was, all of them were pretty good systems. And you'll see as we go through some of the papers, not all the papers that were published used all the components of the system. And in fact, they layered on, a, I think, a fourth component in some of the later stages of looking at some other things as well. Um, so those are the main things. The, the main products that came up, not surprisingly, were oxycodone uh, and rank water, immediate release oxycodone, extended release oxycodone, morphine and methadone, and hydromorphone. Um, and for the most part, growth in prescriptions for all drugs over the study period, which was 2002 to 2005, 
increased. So there was more and more prescription drugs out of the system being used and being noted. Um, the ones that were clearly ahead of the others were extended release oxycodone and hydrocodone were by far the most abused drugs of all those studied. Um, they go on to discuss a variety of issues, none of which I think are surprising. Um, you know, one of which I, th I thought was maybe uh, odd in how they stated it. So given that they estimated that there's over 4 million people suffering from pain control, they sort of insinuate that maybe we're not prescribing enough opiates at that point, which is sort of, I think, nowadays um, a ridiculous concept that we realize like <laughs> chronic pain, really, we need to ratchet back the prescription opiates. Um, and they also note that, that probably 6 million people may, in fact, not have prescriptions for opiates. Uh, they're not taking these drugs therapeutically, but they're somehow using these drugs uh, illicitly in the United States. Um, they've talked about some of the limitations, which I think we'll bring up in each of the studies, uh, about how some zip codes are big and some zip codes are small, and reporting biases and, and, and things along those lines. But I think it's basically a good description of what the radar's surveillance system is, that it's looking at a lot of things, not just poison-centered data, that it showed that uh, drug abuse is a problem, needs to be followed, uh, and it, it can provide, like I said, quote, systemic data that would help um, determine whether or not uh, there's a drug abuse um, problem in the United States. And they said one of their sort of unstated goals, probably from the Purdue Pharma side, was to provide data that to refute the claim that there was an epidemic of extended release oxycodone abuse. And they admit from their perspective that was not true. There really was a epidemic of oxy, extended release oxycodone abuse in the country. Um, so, I, you know, for whatever, it was done appropriately and they did find that, in fact, that is a drug of concern. It is, it is interesting on that paper, if you look at figure four, mm -hmm. when you look at the number of abuse you know, a uh, number of uh, abuse per prescription written, mm -hmm. uh, the hydrocodone just basically disappears. And really, extended release oxycodone, hydromorphone, and methadone out are really the problem. Mm -hmm. And the, all of the other, the immediate release oxycodone and hydrocodone have a very, very, very small percentage of abuse per prescription written. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting kind of funny that they kind of went in with, you know, I mean, I, I, that, that thought, thought, I mean, I don't know if they actually went in with that, but, you know, I think I would have gotten in with that thought process that oxycontin, that specific extended release product is, is not, you know, the, the biggest one, but it's clearly per prescription written. Right. Right. The top. By right. Far. Right. And, and as they say, the other companies have jumped into the market and there's other makers of extended release oxycodone mm -hmm. besides oxycontin. Right. Yeah. Right. So we are going to take a tour of the different age groups and some of the different drugs, more specifically in the radar system. The first uh, article we're going to talk about is um, pediatrics, actually two on pediatrics, one on young children and then a second on adolescents. So Rachel, tell us about this one on the toll of prescription opiate abuse on young children. All right, so this study, the hypothesis was that poisoning of young children um, from prescription opioids occurs regularly um, and is associated with serious health effects, um, including death. So 
In their introduction, they talk about the 32.7 million people in the United States that are 12, 12 and older and um, have used a prescription opioid non-medically at least once in their lifetime. And opioid abuse consequences are similar to that um, associated with heroin abuse, which is loss of employment, incarceration, um, and then the medical complications, including respiratory arrest and death. Um, and then opioid analgesic poisonings, as documented on death certificates, has increased 91% between 1999 and 2002. So the adverse effects of prescription opioids on children is not well documented, which is why they wanted to do this study. Um, new parents are usually young adults, um, and that's uh, primary uh, prescription drug abusers are also young adults. Um, so children may be exposed to these drugs. So um, the radar system... Um, is following all of the, all of this data, and so they hypothesized that they would be able to find um, prescription opioid poisoning of young children occurring regularly and um, associated with serious health events, including death. So the materials and methods, um, this was from Poison Centers, and they talk about how the data is collected there. So we don't know, need to go into that in detail, but they're trained um, national and nationally certified to manage these calls. Um, and then they, had, they have standard definitions for entering their data. Um, so the poison centers that are participating in radars at the time um, of this study increased from 11 of the 61 centers to 40, <clears throat> excuse me, 40 um, by the end of the study. So that was between 2003 and 2006. Um, and they were submitting weekly to radars. Um, and we already talked about the training there, so I won't go into any more of that in detail. But, um, so they had associated outcomes assigned uh, by the trained medical staff, and so they defined them as minor, moderate, major, and then death. So minor was defined as the patient having some symptoms, um, but not, but they were minimally bothersome. Um, moderate effect was defined as having symptoms that were a result of the exposure. They were more pr pronounced or prolonged. Um, then the minor symptoms, and usually some form of treatment was indicated, but it wasn't life-threatening. A major effect was defined as um, symptoms from the exposure that were life-threatening and resulted in significant residual disability or disfigurement. Um, and then death was if the patient died as a result of the exposure or a direct complication of the exposure. Um, and then all mentions associated with major effect or death outcome were abstracted. Um, with a standard abstraction form. The next part talks about the URDD, which we mentioned in the last article. So what they did was um, they wanted to find out how many, um, how many opioid analgesics were uh, dispensed from retail pharmacies and they uh, coded them by their three digit uh, zip code. So one URDD is a unique individual who received a dispensed prescription for that opioid during one quarter um, and this eliminates refills and repeated prescriptions to that same person. Um, since there's drug diversion, and it depends on how they're storing their medications um, as to who else may be getting these medications, um, there's kind of some limitations there, but it represents the availability through the medical system. So that's the URDD that they're using. So their results, they came up with 9,240 exposures um, involving 9,179 children younger than six. Um, and this mostly involved hydrocodone and oxycodone. Um, median age is two, um, and it ranged from newborns to five and a half years old. 
and almost all of them, 99% of them, were uh, ingested and unintentional. 54% um, were boys, and 92% occurred in the child's home, and then there was another 6% that was in another residence. And then opioids were just usually found in the toddler's or exploring environment. Um, so 83% of them were from the public, just calling into the poison centers. 37% um, were referred to a healthcare facility. Um, contact with the poison center was initiated by the healthcare facility in 17% um, of cases, and then 47% of the cases um, were en route to the hospital or referred to the hospital. Um, there were eight deaths, 43 major effects, 214 moderate effects. This is all shown um, in table one there. And then the proportion of mentions associated with any, uh, with any effect followed to a known outcome was significantly greater for buprenorphine. Um, so that you can see um, in that first column after the characteristics, the buprenorphine, um, there was only 32% of them that had no effect. They were mostly uh, minor effect and moderate effects. Um, so all mentions associated with major effects or death um, involved ingestion except for two non-fatal cases of an inappropriate fentanyl patch that was applied. Um, there were 51% who had a major effect or death. 35, uh, for 35 of those 51 patients were treated with naloxone um, and 34 of the 35 um, had a reported beneficial response with the naloxone, and the, the only one case that didn't was not reported, whether or not there was a response. Um, so labeling for buprenorphine indicates that um, the opioid effects may not be reversed by naloxone, but they showed that all five buprenorphine cases um, did have a beneficial response recorded. Um, all of the deaths, all of the deaths associated with exposures um, were kids younger than three. Um, four of them were oxycodone, two were hydrocodone, and methadone was another two. Um, the medication is source, uh, 51 of them. The medication was, the medication source was assessed for 51 of them um, with major effects or death. Um, and the source could be determined from uh, 39 of them. Uh, only two of them were the children's medication. Um, one of them was a therapeutic error, um, and another one was an adverse reaction. So uh, for 37 of those, the um, intended prescription was for the adult in the house, uh, most commonly the child's mother, but they also came from father, grandparents, um, and then other adults like friends. Um, so there was a significantly higher proportion of buprenorphine mentions that had um, a medical effect uh, so these were examined in more detail. So they found that there were nine Subutex and then 137 uh, or 136 Suboxone cases, um, which makes sense because there's a lot more Suboxone that's prescribed than Subutex. Um, so most of the exposures uh, were associated with no effect or minor effect. And then the buprenorphine exposures uh, did not have any deaths. There were five major effects and 25 moderate effects. Um, so 29% of the Subutex mentions had a known outcome, and then 2% of Suboxone um, had a major effect. So um, the next part is about the URDD. So there was a positive association um, between uh, the URDD uh, for their three-digit zip code for all the um, opioid analgesics. 
Um, so this makes sense as there are more opioids in the community, there are more um, exposures in children. Um, the table two there shows that it goes into detail each of the deaths that were that were um, found in this study. So the first one was methadone, um, and it was found to be consistent with the opioid analgesic effect um, because the patient was not breathing. Um, mom had methadone and said that there was some white powder around the baby's mouth. Um, the next one was an 11-month-old that got some hydrocodone. They weren't sure if this one was consistent with the opioid, but um, the patient was in respiratory arrest on arrival and had some seizures. Um, this one was complicated because there were several other drugs involved that you can see listed there in the table. Um, same with the next, uh, the next one, the 16-month-old and the 20-month-old. Uh, um, the 16-month-old, um, they did say that this one was consistent with opioid because um, the kid was playing with some medications. The medications were removed, but um, they didn't think that they got any, so... Uh, no action was taken until respiratory, the kid was in respiratory arrest. Um, the next one was indeterminate because the patient had normal vital signs and ECG um, without TCA effect. Um, urine was positive for opioids, uh, for opiates, um, and then they had bilateral cerebellar infarcts and hemorrhages found. So uh, the proximate cause of death was sepsis. They're not quite sure if it was directly related to the opioid. Um, hydrocodone, the next case, the kid was in respiratory arrest and had positive hydrocodone um, serum level. And then the last three oxy, were oxycodone. One had no clinical information, one was in respiratory arrest, um, and another was unresponsive. So those last two were, were related to the opioid effect. Um, the limitation of this study, uh, they talk about how not all exposures are captured because not all of them are called into poison centers, like Zane mentioned earlier. If the provider is comfortable um, dealing with what they have in the ED, it might not necessarily be called in. Um, they also talk about the flux of um, the number of participating poison centers um, over the three years that this data was collected also. Um, and then the limitations that every poison center is going to have because it's a verbal report from a caller and there's no um, confirmation of the data. Um, so the discussion here, um, they concluded that young children are endangered by prescription opioids. Um, unlike most drugs um, for which uh, the beneficial and adverse effects occur primarily in the intended recipient, um, this shows that there are major health con consequences, including death um, in an unintended population, um, such as these kids under six years old. Um, so the risk-benefit analysis is difficult because you're trying to treat a person um, for their pain, and this is an unintended um, population. So the outpatient use of prescription opioids um, is not common in kids, and there's little medical exposure. So there should be little medical exposure in this group. Um, so. They reiterate that there were 9,179 exposures and uh, eight of these children died. Um, many of the cases were treated um, in the emergency department and then um, only a portion of the U.S. poison centers participated during the study period. So um, likely there are a lot more exposures out there that are not accounted for in the study. Um, they talk about future research uh, to be done in the area. Um, mostly these cases are done, um, uh, these cases are ingestion of medications in the home. 
um, and they're toddlers that are just exploring their environment. So they're in a, inadvertent exposures um, to children. Um, so the effectiveness of mechanical controls um, are pretty limited. They mostly just slow down how how fast the kid can get into it um, and don't necessarily make the make it so that the kid can't get into the containers at all. So that's the blister packs and um, child safety um, child safety bottles. So they're useful, but um, not necessarily going to um, prevent all of these cases. Um, the next section talks about ed educating caregivers, um, which is reasonably effective, um, and everything's labeled to keep it away from kids. Um, but there isn't anything that warns that one pill can kill a young child. Um, so the role of education in eliminating access to opioids is not very clear. Um, most of the population might have a greater risk-taking behavior um, than regular caregivers if they're um, if they are abusing opioids themselves. Um, and then, according to the pharmacology of buprenorphine, um, there's supposedly resistance to naloxone, but this study did show that all of the cases, all of the buprenorphine cases that were treated um, with naloxone, did have a beneficial response. So they did conclude that it's reasonable to use naloxone. Um, and then as for the other opioids, they recommend um, the use of naloxone in these cases. Um, and then young children are exposed frequently to prescription opioids, resulting in major health effects and death um, because one tablet of an opioid analgesic may be lethal to a young child. Interventions are need to prevent, needed to prevent exposure and reduce deaths, and that is their conclusion of the study. Yeah, so kind of points out what <coughs> I think... We all, certainly in the toxic world, emergency medicine world, know is that kids get into these. These are potent medicines, especially the long-acting, high-potency versions of these drugs. And it is the, I always hate the one pill can kill kind of mm -hmm. lecture, but these are the one pills that can kill things like me uh, methadone and oxycodones and whatnot. This was written in 2009. I mean, since then, we've become more aware of things like home Narcan and things like that. And people have debated whether or not if prescriptions are written for parents who have kids, whether or not, even if the doses aren't high for the parents, that they should maybe dispense Narcan as a rescue medicine in case <coughs> something happens. Uh, the cost-benefit of that needs to be worked out. Again, there's a multi-year study where how much do you spend to prevent eight deaths or 12 deaths? Um, that's hard to think, but it's always exceedingly tragic when it's a child's death and it's a preventable phenomenon. And as we mentioned, the packaging and the safety lecture that they get at the pharmacy counter is often not enough to, to take care of that. Um, the next group of folks that we wanted to comment on and study are a group that's not inadvertent uh, accidents, but usually uh, abuse and misuse, and those are the adolescents uh, group. So uh, to tell us about those, Matt. Thanks, Zane. Yeah, I'm going to be reviewing an article that was published in 2013 in the Journal of Academy, uh, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry by Dr. Zosel et al. entitled Characterization of Adolescent Prescription Drug Abuse and Misuse Using the Radars System. So uh, similar type of setup to the articles we've already been discussing, so I won't belabor the uh, ins and outs of the radar system. Um, this is a study focused specifically on adolescents, which they define as um, patients aged 13 to 19. And a bit of the background, they cite several, looks like six studies 
between 2005 and 2009, which report varying uh, ranges of um, incidents and prevalence data of adolescent use of uh, prescription drugs in a non-prescription or non-medical um, intention. Um, and I think somewhere between 7 and 12 percent um, is a good number for us to keep in mind as far as the, the incidence of non-medical use of prescription drugs um, among adolescents. There's the National Survey on Drug Use and Health and the Monitoring the Future study, as well as several others. As far as what uh, adolescents are using, um, these end up being prescription opioids, Vicodin, uh, OxyContin, so hydrocodone and oxycodone for the reasons that we've already discussed, um, but also methylphenidate and amphetamine. Um, and as uh, putative reasons, the authors cite things like farming parties, that's farming with a pH, um, where adolescents sort of get together and then exchange prescription medications for the intention of misuse or abuse, um, as well as just the general overall trend of increasing prescription of and availability of um, both ADHD treatment drugs like methylphenidate and amphetamines, as well as the overall availability of opioid pain medications. A couple of things to note, um, they cite uh, data to suggest that adolescent non-medical prescription analgesic use um, may be associated with a threefold increase in odds of developing a general substance or opioid use disorder within the following three years um, as evidence that, you know, this is a potentially serious health concern and public health problem. Adolescents are a little bit different from the group that Rachel was talking about insofar as Younger children are almost always uh, unintentional exposures. Adolescents, um, it's kind of this dangerous situation where uh, you combine less personal experience with drugs, whether they're prescription or non-prescription use, as well as intentional use. Um, and as we see almost, uh, well, I should say the majority of cases here are intentional use episodes. The study has four specific aims which they lay out. Essentially, it's to describe the characteristics of adolescent prescription drug abuse and misuse, um, and then the sort of interrelationships between um, where the exposures are reported to the poison centers. This, this is all poison center data, um, as well as sort of the health effects and disposition of the patients. Uh, the study was performed between 2007 and 2009, so about a two-and-a-half-year study period uh, using the radars data, which we've already talked about, so we can skip through that. Um, Rachel did mention the URDD, which is representative of the number of unique persons filling a prescription for a particular drug. So URDD rates are uh, expressed as an exposure over 1,000 URDD per quarter. Um, and in order to get these data, um, the authors uh, purchased prescription drug data from a surveillance data incorporation uh, LLC. Okay, so let's jump right into the results. There were uh, 636,000 um, drug exposures reported to the radar system uh, in this particular time period, um, of which 3% or 21,000 were adolescent exposures. So of the adolescent exposures, or 21,000, uh, 22% only were classified as unintentional, leaving us with 77%, or 16,000 as intentional. 
um, and 38% classified as suspected suicidal. Uh, there are data for mean age of an intentional exposure, 16.6 years, um, and uh, overall of 17 years. Pretty equal male to female ratio, somewhere on the order of 48 to 52, respectively. Um, and I, I think one of the big takeaway points is the overall uh, percentage of intentional exposures to prescription opioids was 68% or 11,000 of the 21,000, with only 32% or 5,000 to prescription stimulants. Uh, the five most frequently mentioned drugs, which account for 90% of all the intentional adolescent exposures, were hydrocodone as number one, about 5,000 or 32%, amphetamines number two at 18% or 4,300, followed by oxycodone, 2,400 or 15%, methylphenidate, 2,200 or 14%, and then finally tramadol, 1,700 or 11%. Again, pretty roughly equal male to female ratio um, as far as uh, opioid and stimulant exposures. Um, and most of these were polysubstance with single substance being reported about 48% of the time. So roughly equal, but uh, mathematically more common to have uh, multiple exposures or I'm sorry, multiple substance exposures. The vast, vast majority, 86% of the exposures were reported to occur in the adolescent's own home, um, much less commonly uh, in someone else's house, about 3%, or in school, also about 3%. Um, of interest, about 30% were treated in a healthcare facility. Um, uh, half of those were admitted, um, and... Uh, sort of about a third to the ICU. Uh, and then, of course, suspected suicidal exposures um, oftentimes have involvement of a psychiatry service. When they did some secondary calculations looking at adjusting the data for the availability of the substance ingested, methadone had the highest URDD rate, although it's definitely worth mentioning that those data are very likely skewed because methadone... Um, as dispensed by opioid treatment programs are not recorded. Um, so that is going to uh, uh, affect the rate pretty significantly. So if we throw methadone out, we're left with methylphenidate as the highest URDD rate at 0 0.108 exposures per 1,000 URDD per quarter. That's followed closely by buprenorphine and amphetamines. Uh, and then of the opioids that they looked at, fentanyl had the lowest rate. Um, they also look at the sort of health effects, as I mentioned previously. 17% had no effect, 39% with minor effect, 23% with moderate, 3.6% with major, and 0.1% or a total of 20 patients out of 21,000 died. Um, and when you... Uh, separate out the outcome and analyze for each specific drug, oxycodone and methadone intentional exposures were associated with the most deaths, most deaths um, with seven and seven, respectively. Um, buprenorphine, there were three deaths. There were no deaths associated with tramadol, hydromorphone, morphine, methylphenidate, or amphetamine intentional exposures. All right, so a couple of sort of takeaway points um, 
as we mentioned before, adolescents are more likely to intentionally expose themselves to uh, prescription opioids and prescription stimulants. It seems as though the data would support conclusions that opioids are more commonly abused by adolescents than stimulants, uh, although those two are the leading um, substances, very likely because of their overall availability and prescribing patterns. Um, I won't go into it too much, but there's a nice discussion of how these data are somewhat different from the epidemiologic data found by uh, a different study by Wu et al., and that the current data here presented would suggest that, in fact, the male-to-female ratio is a little bit more even than previously thought. There are some um, uh, potential reasons given for that. Um, again, they reiterate that most of these uh, uh, exposures occur in the home, and the reasons that may be, um, including the fact that an adolescent that's found intoxicated at home, presumably by parents, are more likely to be brought to the attention of a poison center. So that could skew the data being collected um, and to falsely elevate that particular um, uh, category. We talked about how the URDD rate for methadone may be artificially high um, and that there's probably more availability of methadone than that reported. Uh, so if we, again, throw that out, we're left with uh, different conclusions about uh, the uh, intentional abuse rate per substance. Those are kind of most of the highlights that I wanted to touch on. Uh, the rest of the conclusions are relatively straightforward and commonsensical. Um, not to belittle them, but I don't think we need to go through each one of them here. Anybody else have any thoughts about the article that I missed? No, it's a, it's a good summary. I, you know, I think we've all appreciated that we're getting a call on kids. There's really two major groups. There's the, the accidental toddler, and then there's the adolescents who we may not have the whole picture on. They may be misusing it. They may not give a complete picture. They may be suicidal and claim they're not. It's a far more complicated group of individuals um, that um, we need to assess. The overall uh, number of deaths is low in both groups, but still there are numbers that exist. Um, and uh, Pretty much that. As far as preventative measures, I think the main point for both of those is most of these things happen at home, and so parents literally locked up their own meds with a lockbox. And some poison centers actually have a programs where they hand out, you know, boxes with keys and things like that, so parents can actually lock up their um, medications. It may go away to preventing some of these occurrences that that do happen. Uh, the next demographic we want to address, and since someone picked it up. I did, maybe it fits a little bit. Subscription opiate exposures and adverse outcomes amongst older adults. <sighs> so yet another demographic group here to talk about. And, you know, why are they different? Well, you know, they're more likely to have chronic pain. Um, 100 million U.S. adults with chronic pain. Um, it gets worse the older you get. Uh, the more likely you are to get a prescription from your doctor. Um, on top of it, there's impaired cognitive function. As people get older, so they're more likely to become confused due to polypharmacy or how many pills they took or if one drug isn't working, take a second one kind of phenomenon. So this was a study um, of the radar system uh, from January 2006 through December uh, 2014, so bring us almost up to date 
here, and they looked at the, at that time, they had gone up to 49 poison centers covering 92% of the U.S. population by the time the study was done, and they looked at the same demographics that we've discussed. So they identified uh, 57,681 calls reporting the misuse of prescription opiates in adults uh, uh, altogether over this nine-year period. There were uh, 2,755 serious medical outcomes, uh, which accounted for about 5% of the known medical outcomes. A larger proportion of serious medical outcomes occurred in those older adults, those at 60 years old plus, uh, which was about 5.7% of that group versus younger adults, which were 20 to 59 of age. So a little bit of a difference, but a statistically significant difference. Uh, rates among older adults increased in each quarter in a curvilinear manner over time although the rate of increase slowed in the last few quarters that the study was done. And in younger adults, there was also a significant negative trend in the last several years as well. So part of those last years, 2014 and 13, there was starting to be a greater awareness of prescription drug abuse, prescription drug monitoring, and perhaps less prescriptions ultimately dispense. As far as serious medical outcomes, there was twice as likely in the older adults compared to the younger adults with 2.65 events per million versus 1.18 per million population. And the greater proportion of these resulted in deaths and more likely in the older adults. Um, and serious outcomes were higher among the older adults than the younger adults for each calendar year and each quarter. So as time went by, we were prescribing more and more drugs and there was more and more outcomes that were negative in the older group than in the younger group. So in their discussion, uh, they sort of reiterate uh, this simple finding that over this nine-year time period, the older adults fared less well than younger adults, as they probably do for almost every other disease state that we know of. Um, but this is one where they clearly exceeded those of their uh, younger cohort, and serious medical outcomes were high amongst this group. And then they talk about some of the reasons, perhaps, the existence of chronic pain, the existence of oversedation, the existence of respiratory depression with polypharmacy, especially with benzos, some of the physiologic effects that occur with aging, such as increased fat mass and decreased muscle mass and decreased body water may all have uh, drug distribution effects that uh, cause the same dose in the same person to be different for an older person than a uh, younger person. Um, the limitations is, are, is of that of a poison center study, is that you may not get called except on sort of the more serious or outlier cases. Uh, they didn't make an attempt to quantify which other medications were involved um, as much as the other two studies did, so there wasn't a trend for uh, one specific substance over the others that at least were delineated in this group. So different ages and different risks and different demographics to be aware of with opiates. To tell us a little bit about the overall trend of all opiates in the United States on mortality specifically um, is probably their, the largest benchmark study from this group in the New England Journal in January of 2015. Uh, we have Caitlin, our emergency medicine resident, to tell us more. All right, yeah, so I'm going to take you guys through um, an article published in the January 2015 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Trends in Opioid Analgesic Abuse Mortality in the U.S. 
And essentially, um, we took note that there were over 16,000 opioid-related deaths in 2010. And since then, there's been hundreds of different federal, state, and local interventions that have been implemented. And this study is basically to take a look at the trends in the diversion and abuse of prescription opioids um, using data up through 2013. So essentially, uh, in talking about the methods, they went and used the radar system, and they, you know, they plotted it and they took different um, measurements to see what the trends were over the different years to see whether or not they're working. Um, so the data is coming from the different five different arms of the radar group, uh, and they amassed a large amount of cases. If you look in Table One, um, several different cases were looked at build this data, and it's from, you know, both patients as well as doctors, poison centers, um, and also college students who reported non-medical use of prescription drugs. And then when breaking down the results for the study, they were looking at prescriptions for opioids that were written, as well as rates of opioid diversion and abuse, and then rate of opioid-related deaths. And so prescriptions um, for opioids did increase from 2000 to 2010, and then at 2000. 11, there's a deflection point, and the prescriptions that were written had decreased slightly through 2013. Um, and then the radar system um, reported large increases in the rates of the opioid diversion and abuse from 2002 to 2010. And then again, in 2011 to 2013, noted that the rates began to flatten and then decrease slightly. And then the rate of opioid deaths rose and fell in a very similar pattern. And then not sticking with the trend where it's non-medical use uh, amongst college students. And so looking at figure one, you can see, you know, they use the regression model and they use the quadratic bit to get that vertex where they kind of have this consistent deflection point around 2011 where we started to see changes in the trends uh, with how these drugs are being diverted, abused, and then enlisting into opioid treatment programs. Um, but then interestingly, like as this paper goes on, it starts to talk about that heroin use um, had started to increase over time as well. And that the rate of heroin-related cases began to increase in 2006, and then in 2010 really began to accelerate, which is, you know, coinciding with when we see these other curves beginning to taper off. Um, and then moving on to figure two, it starts to compare the trends that we have with the rate of heroin use and... Um, talking about when reformulated Oxycontin gets put out. And so the FDA approved an abuse deterrent labeling for reformulated Oxycontin so people wouldn't abuse it. And essentially what figure two begins to show is that heroin starts to kind of take off and starts to, in some ways, looks like it's replacing a lot of the, when we see tapered off in one area, heroin starts to take over in others. Um, so going to the author's conclusion, they said, you know, looking at the trends in the opioid prescriptions and then the deaths and the um, diversions and abuse, they said that the U.S. seems to be making progress in controlling the abuse of opioid analgesics uh, by looking at the decrease in these rates between 2011 and 2013. So looking at the study, you know, they did a large volume of cases. It's a variety of perspectives that are contributing to this data pool. Um, so it's pretty well encompassing. It's using zip codes from all over the country. And so it's pretty well rounded in terms of the data sampling. And then I think the regressions that they chose for the analysis was appropriate. Um, they did discuss, you know, what do we think is accounting for these trends? And they're saying, you know, is the supply is probably decreasing as doctors are prescribing less as people be, are being educated. 
Um, but also maybe demands less. You know, patients are requesting or maybe feigning less symptoms in the um, and they also, you know, briefly touched on how there have been studies in the past that show less desirable formulations of oxycodone would lead to less requests for that formulation. So maybe as we start to put some of these other abuse deterrent drugs in the market, people are requesting them less often. And then there's been multiple government programs to improve opioid prescribing, reduce doctor shopping, uh, limit questionable practices. There's been the implementation of prescription monitoring programs in 49 of the 50 states. And then, you know, there's been things done at local levels, such as closing up the pill mills in Florida, where they had massive amounts of doctors prescribing opioid medications. Um, and so, but now that we've, you know, kind of we're switching from the abuse of a prescription opioid, the question is, are we now substituting with a higher purity, low-cost heroin? And so, um, there's an interesting kind of fact brought in the paper, but they said that given that 79.5% of new heroin initiates the National Survey on Drug Use and Health reported that their initial drug was a prescription opioid and that they reported heroin use in their substance abuse programs. That rate doubled after the introduction of the abuse deterrent OxyContin. So they concluded that it seems likely that the reformulation of extended release oxycodone in 2010 has contributed to the increase in reported heroin use. And then if you look in figure three, there's a rates of death associated with heroin and prescription op opioids graph from 2002 to 2013, um, and whereas we have kind of gained control, it appears, of the deaths associated with prescription opioids, the rates of deaths associated with heroin have been sharply rising on uh, comparison. Um, so that's kind of what, you know, I took away from this paper, and while we're doing well from the controlled substances, what's happening in terms of heroin and how that's changed. That figure, yeah. sorry to interrupt, that figure three is somewhat misleading, though. There's an arbitrary decision made to change the scale mm -hmm. between heroin and prescription opioids, which is unnecessary if you look at the absolute range of each of those. So that decision sort of misleads the viewer to presume that heroin deaths or heroin by extension is more dangerous. Right. I see that. But nonetheless, I did point out an important kind of paraphenomenon as we clamp down on like this decade-long trend of wide-open pain medication prescription and getting more and more of it out when we finally had more rational, in some parts, prescribing, uh, prescription drug monitoring programs so we can check how many prescriptions people have, less numbers of pills given out, then there was sort of a subtle rise in college use, which is the only thing that went up of all those trends in the last couple of years, and a rise, although not higher than oxycodone or other opioid prescription deaths, but a rise in heroin deaths that was very real. So there's this substitution phenomenon um, that's seen in other self-harm kind of behaviors. We've seen it if you like limit the number of ways people can hurt themselves they'll find something else if their intent is to hurt themselves, and it's, it's very hard to get, get around. Um, so I think that sounded a, a, a kind of an alarm bell that it's hard to get around. Um, and, you know, I think heroin as a separate discussion sort of entered the consciousness in the major media at about this time, because nobody was really talking about a lot of heroin deaths that people were paying a lot of minds to before this. But um, since this, I think there's people are realizing it's a big problem and it's a young person's problem, and it's sometimes a college student problem that needs to be addressed. So to kind of kind of skewer down a little bit on one of the things that was done, 
which was these, uh, I would say, tamper-resistant or abuse-deterrent formulations to see if they really made a difference specifically for the drug that they were reformulated for. So Mike's going to tell us about what OxyContin did when they reformulated this product into, it's not really a crush-proof product, but it's a product that when you crush it, it ends up with big chunks, and so it's harder to snort and doesn't melt except for the goo ball, so it's harder to uh, inject. And did that make a difference? Because that happened in 2010. So, Mike. And so this article is called The Effect of an Abuse Deterrent Opioid Formulation, Oxycontin on Opioid Abuse-Related Outcomes in the Post-Marketing Setting uh, by Copeland and colleagues, published in Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics last uh, September 2016. Of note, uh, pretty much every author on there is um, an employee of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, and pretty much it seems from, I don't know the politics or what went into starting all this, but this was pretty much, uh, here's all a summary of 10 different studies looking mm. at all of these different things because the FDA made us do it. Um, and so here's the data that we were, we are complying with the request to publish these data. Well, there is still, you know, there's an input from the FDA to have this, this REMS program, these high-risk drugs, to have risk assessments of them done and post-marketing surveillance, which everyone says they'll do, but then they don't do it once their drug hits the market. So it was, it was, it was at least the beginning of attempt to say, yeah, yeah we, we, we did some post-marketing surveillance, and here's some of the uh, results. So I think, I mean, they obviously have a um, reason to present the data the way they do, but this isn't all their own proprietary database it's using a lot of different things to kind of back up some of the things they say here. Um, I think I'll spend most of the time on some of the charts but just by way of introduction um, like Zane said we have these OADPs, opioid analgesics with abuse deterrent properties that are a new way to maybe stop some of this abuse. There are various ways you can do that. You could combine it with naloxone um, you can then make these pills and tablets formulated in different ways so you can't crush them or extract the drug or um, and then inject the drug intravenously. So we wonder, do any of these actually change anything or not? Um, and one thing I didn't realize here is that that had gone off patent some years before this change was made. And so what they did is in 2010, they made the change and then started distributing this new formulation of OxyContin, which had these abuse deterrent properties. But I don't know how that works for all the generic manufacturers or if this was the FDA said everyone who makes extended release oxycodone now uses this. No, it's, it's yeah, so they. But it's they, only if someone writes. Oxycontin on the script as these are the ones that they're capturing. Right, exactly. So the, the company basically 2000 said, so we're going to stop shipping the old version. We're shipping only the new version to pharmacies. But if you write generic extended release oxycodone, you may get this product or you may get another product. Yeah. And quite frankly, there, people do get a little sticker shock when they get to the counter and find out, oh, that one costs more than it used to. And they call the doctor back and they say, well, there's some generic substitutions, is it okay? 
and there's no notation in any of this how often that occurs, but um, clearly, you know, from writing for some of these prescriptions sometimes, that's what people do. And does that restart the clock then on the patent, even though it's the same drug, if the delivery system is different, you can patent that drug delivery system and right. restart the clock. So OxyContin is just oxycodone. That patent ran out years before, but now it's the same parent drug, but a different delivery system. Yes. So we now we have seven years, or however long right. it is, to be the only company that can make it just like that. Right. Well, they're not the only one. They could only make it like that for oxycodone. Yes. And several other companies have done uh, abuse to term formulations for morphine and for um, some of the other opiates that we've talked about. I don't think there's one for methadone, but I know some of the other pain relievers there are. Um, so, uh, and they were all of them work a little differently, and all of them are slightly different patents. But yes, that does allow them sort of unique marketing ability for an extended period of time. How to say people before this change, people would crush these and snort them, or perhaps uh, then crush them and then ingest them orally, but the drug would be released more rapidly, or would extract the drug and inject it intravenously before this reformulation, citing some um, data from treatment programs. Um, I think let's kind of just start looking at all these figures here that'll take us through most of it, and I'll make some comments from the text. So figure one on the next page, um, 1A, you see um, those lines there where they said, all right, quarter three, August 2010, the new formulation was released. You can see that the teal line is the original formulation that quickly drops off to almost zero after several months. Um, the blue line being the new one that uh, increases, and then the purple, the total oxycodone uh, prescriptions that uh, are, are written after that, which has a decline over those years. So you can see rapidly the new oxycontin formulation um, penetrates the market, and there's not much of the remaining um, old non deterrent formulation there. So then they say, okay, that's OxyContin. Let's compare that to these other opioids. Um, that's part B of that figure. And so they take from 2009 to 2010, pretty much a one-year period prior to the formulation. They have a little break for a washout period and then start in 2011 to 2013 to see what are the rates of the prescriptions with those pie charts. I think pie charts are a bad way to just show data, mm -hmm. but um, pretty much what you can get from that is that the oxycodone or, ox, or oxycontin prescription, the blue slice went from 3.6% of prescriptions to 2.9%. Um, so not a large absolute number that are out there, but a pretty big decline of um, oxycontin. There was a pretty stable uh, amount for most of the others, except for immediate release oxycodone. The reddish color went up, and um, the hydrocodone acetaminophen formulations went down a little bit, but still held the lion's share of opioid prescriptions at 65%. Uh, so I guess what they wanted to show is, you know, how what kind of shift was there 
after this, and well, people are prescribing it less. Was that because patients figured it out and they don't want it anymore because they can't abuse it? Maybe so. Um, and then let's go to the next page, figure two. This got complicated because they have all these overlapping things from all these different sources. The picture they're trying to paint here and figure two and figure, I guess, two on these two separate pages, you'll see A, B, C, and D. First, they have it through population rates and then through prescription adjusted rates for all these things. So I think if we went down to the page 279 to um, figure two, parts C and D, what you'll see across the top, they lump all these in the various categories, misuse, abuse, opioid use disorder, number of overdoses, fatalities, um, drug diversion, doctor shopping, which has an interesting definition. If you have prescriptions from more than two doctors at greater than three pharmacies, which I guess is a standardized definition that qualifies as doctor shopping um, over a period of like six months or something like that. Um, and then, so that's the top part of all that, that blue um, chart. And then at the bottom, you can see where all these things come from. Radars that we've talked about, NPDS, some other databases that we haven't talked about that are from like opioid treatment programs, um, some adverse events reported to Purdue Pharma, and, and then some prescription data, like some of the prescription databases that they mentioned before. So what you can see all across there is these are percent changes um, from before and after the new formulation was released. And you can see everything decreases um, from 29% you know, less to 60% less uh, across the board under all of those. And you'll notice if you did look back at that other part of figure two on the previous page that um, when adjusted for prescription rates, the change isn't as dramatic um, when it's just by a population rate. Um, and then part D, the next section below, has a similar layout. Um, and then here what they're doing is now they're comparing different opioids. The, in 2D on page 279, you see the, uh, again, whatever teal color is extended release oxymorphone, that Opana. Yes. Trade name for that. Mm -hmm. um, the green is all Schedule II opioids, um, and then we have extended release morphine there. So you can kind of compare um, what happened to all of these. And so those are using those same things as you're seeing in the other one, but comparing it to these other um, things. You can see that there wasn't a big change in most of these other compounds. What they're saying is. It wasn't just that OxyContin went with every other opioid on the market and everything decreased because there was increased awareness. It's that we're saying our formulation made the change because all the other opioids either stayed the same or in some cases, now people were abusing more MS cotton. You can see by D, the purple extended release morphine, um, you know, opioid use disorder and overdose went up and people started doctor shopping for Opana a whole lot uh, in part D. So it's... They say it's not just that everything went down, it's ours went down and other stuff either stayed the same or in some cases people picked a, picked a different poison. Um, and it goes back to that same sort of you know, right. means substitution. If you take something away from people or make it harder to use, they'll 
still find a way. Yeah. yeah. Let's uh, go to the next page, figure three. Um, so here we just have more trends for abuse or diversion or misuse. The red line in all of those is uh, oxycontin. Um, blue is immediate release oxycodone, a single entity plus combo. I guess that means like with formulated with acetaminophen. And then you have comparator opioids in the green. And so you can see that around that time, I know these charts are a little bit small, but around 2010, oxycontin drops off sooner than everything else. And you can see in some of these that there's a decline in most of them, but it's a couple of years before there's a decline in the other opioids. So whether there are more uh, state prescription drug monitoring programs, whether there's increased patient and physician awareness, uh, or whatever else, that wasn't the main thing because OxyContin use or abuse or diversion decreased sooner and to a greater degree than these other opioids. I guess the take home message there from all those different data systems. Um, let's go on to the next page, 281. That's figure four. Here's some more changes before and after. Um, so, A, that top chart on the left is OxyContin. So, here we have opioid overdose and poisoning rates among those prescribed death. And this is adjusted per 100 years of opioid use. So you can see the only one that really decreased there was OxyContin. Went down 34% before and after. Uh, other things stayed the same. Or again, there's MSContin goes up by 17%. And uh, Dilaudid goes up. Immediate release hydromorphone goes up. How do you... How do you quantify time, someone gets a prescription, they overdose the first time they get a prescription and die. So that therapeutic mixed adventure, they took too many, they die. Like, these are opioid years, and this patient had a prescription for a day or two. Like, how do you, yeah, uh, it's, I don't you know take the prescription database and they say that? there were these many patients and they have prescriptions starting this amount of time. Whether, whatever, however much they were prescribed, but there were this many patients taking it for this many months, Have you and seen of those adjusted like that. This so, way before yeah, no, it sounds like they deviated from what they previously were using as sort of their accepted denominator, which is the URDD. So the prescription. Yeah, I wasn't really aware per, of that. Per, the prescription. So they created this prescription years. I mean, it's like the number of people have it times the number of years they were studied. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand when they add the, the time dimension to that drug. Maybe it's the way their statistical monitors came up with something to show that went down. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. One I'm, I'm better just, the other, how so, it changes yeah. things. But every other study where they use the databases, and, and, and again, this one used some other databases, but most of these radars, um, they use this URDD, you know, the total amount of individual prescriptions per three-digit zip code, and... Um, that would have been nice to see, knowing that they had been people who wrote this paper were familiar with that concept. It would have been nice to see that in this paper. Are we prescribing less? And is the number of events per prescription actually falling quicker because they really can't abuse this new formulation? Yeah. And proportionally, are they substituting, meaning are they going to use morphine and hydromorphone 
more because they're saying, I don't like that drug, it didn't work for me, I need to get my, my day lauded this time around, and yeah. the doctors are acquiescing to that or not. We don't know. Yeah. Um, the rest of these charts, so similar thing, B is just opioid use disorder diagnoses. Again, per rate of 100 years of opioid use, oxycontin goes down, and not zero, of course, because people can still be dependent and abuse this just by taking it orally. That doesn't stop you from being addicted or overdosing. Um, smoke it too. It's harder. Yeah, it vaporizes, but it doesn't melt. Right. So you can't inject it. Can't inject it. And part C is same thing. Um, doctor shopping, and this is you know more fair comparison. Percent of patients dispense those opioids. So of all those prescriptions for this drug, how many of them fit that doctor shopping definition of greater than two doctors, more than three pharmacies? Big decrease in OxyContin. Again, increase in Opana. That's pronounced 66%, and a little change in immediate release oxycodone. Um, and I guess does Opana have any abuse deterrent? I think there's there's one formulation that does, and I forget the name of it, but the, each of these other companies are starting to add uh, abuse deterrents to it. The biggest problem, you know, there was a thing recently in John in the medical letter comparing them, is that they're pretty, pretty expensive. So if you jump from one to the other, and because your doctor thinks they want to prevent you from abusing the drug but still maintain you on a long acting opiate, it's like, hey, my drug company or I'm not going to pay the extra two, three hundred dollars a month to get the same medication anymore. And then it becomes sort of a dollar battle at the uh, uh, pharmacy window a lot of times. Um, so here it says back in August, the, the company that makes Opana mm. withdrew its application for abuse deterrent labeling. I guess they changed the coding with, um, on the outside of the tablet, mm -hmm. so you couldn't um, smoke it, but you could dissolve it and inject it. Every abuse deterrent. Yeah. So the reality is the same. completely fixed the abuse deterrent problem. You couldn't smoke it. Couldn't smoke it because of the coding. Yeah. But you could still dissolve it and inject it. Um. All right, I'm going to keep going down here. Um, there's that table one that just shows what do all these different databases look at and what is the study population. We've kind of talked about some of those. Um, I won't go into the details there, but we might point out just a little bit if we go down to table two on the following page on 283 and look at a few things. And so here they're taking many of those um, databases listed in that prior table and looking at OxyContin on the left side and either abuse, um, fatality, diversion, and then comparing it to some comparator, um, whatever they chose. Some it's all Schedule II opioids, which I believe would include, did not include hydrocodone at any of this point because that wasn't until last Recent year yeah. that uh, hydrocodone was made Schedule II, so that's including um, hydromorphone, I guess all the other ones except for tramadol, you know, the lower quantities of codeine and hydrocodone that's in the Schedule II group. So you can see, as you go through each of these radars, poison center, what kind of decrease was there in abuse, 
55% decrease for that and for interesting oral versus non-oral. So I guess they're trying to get smoking and injecting together. Um, you can see a 75% decrease. The most interesting one to me is, you know, we say, oh, it's, you know, the eastern part of the country, Appalachia, the Kentucky survey, kind of halfway through table two. Mm -hmm. These are people just enrolled in the treatment program and they ask them, so what do you do to get high? Mm -hmm. um, and they report, what was the change in injection of Oxycontin? Negative 99.9%. And there was one patient who reported trying to inject it in the last month. <laughs> was the one holdout, and there and everyone else had stopped trying to inject oxycontin. Um, but you can see immediate release oxycodone instead uh, went up. There's a positive change in all of those, and now uh, 83. There was an 83 percent increase in trying to shoot up uh, immediate release oxycodone. So man, shows another one at least in Kentucky became the formulation of choice of oxycodone, at least. Um, I think those are all the tables. Let me just come back through and see if there's anything else from the text to go through. Um, I think that pretty much got it. Here, what their aim was is we're looking at all these things um, from reports directly to us, to radar system, to just NPDES data, to some treatment centers and groups of treatment centers, and we see that abuse of Oxycontin went down um, right after we introduced this change, and all the other opioids may have gone down later, but there was a big delay, so we don't think it was all timing the same thing. Um, they tried to downplay some of the increases and other things, and they're specifically not really mentioning uh, heroin very much uh, in this to see, you know, did anyone... Uh, start using heroin instead of Oxycontin. They say, well, people probably, you wouldn't have expect too many to people because then they'd start using illegal drugs. Right. But, but we know from other studies that's, that's not, the, not the case. They, <laughs> did, people, they did substitute. Maybe there's someone who says, I'm drawing the line at heroin, but I was crushing up and injecting my Oxycontin, right. but now I'm not going to go. You know, there is some basis for people who use oral drugs hesitates to then start injecting. Suburban mom well, you're talking about people who are already injecting. injecting. So yeah. it doesn't really... So I can see there's different populations of people well, that would be sure. opioids. But... Yeah, we discussed this earlier that yeah. there are a fair number of heroin users who report their first drug yeah. of abuse was prescription Right, and we see that a lot. And I've done studies where the first prescription pills were from the emergency departments and were elsewhere, but yeah, I mean, we've heard these stories, both anecdotes and maybe study a little better, that uh, maybe it's not a good idea to give a large amount of opiates to people who probably don't have something that's really that terribly painful that they really should learn how to tolerate and treat with non-opiate-related, uh, you know, ice or uh, uh, NSAIDs or something like that. I was thinking right. of this, just looking at the timing of this as well, and you remember last... May or so is when the LA Times published their big expose on Oxycontin. Mm. And then this was published in September of last year. Um, maybe they get some press on, oh, look, look, we're not so bad. No. Um, so look, we, uh, we, we fixed things and it's got better and it's not our fault. And uh, they say yeah. it only represents 3% of opioid prescriptions. So it's not all their fault. But, I mean, 
you know, hats off because uh, several other pharmaceutical companies have not done that. So Hydro is not. The FDA actually, approved it without it. Right. Not only did the FDA approve it, but they simply refused to, um, you know, to put a deterrent system in. And, and all of the other opioids, you know, it would make sense to have all opioids have, you know, the intent of it is to take it as a pill. That's what the pharmaceutical company is making it for. It would make sense to have a deterrent system on every prescribed opioid, but you know, this is one of the only companies that is actually doing it. So whatever their motivations, you know, you could argue and, but you know. But I agree, it looks like it is, it works. that it's, yeah. It's part of a multifactorial approach. We talked about prevention for people who shouldn't be getting these drugs, like for kids and teenagers, and um, abuse deterrent, and maybe pill packs for that are individualized for the older folks, and abuse deterrents for the people who are prone to misusing it. Uh, the last leg of that three-legged stool is, is treatment. So how do we get people into methadone programs and buprenorphine programs? And as we increase the availability of those drugs, does that alter, does that bend the shape of the curve? So tell us a little bit about that data. Is our visiting resident, Shinyo. Hey, thank you. Um, this is the article from Pain Medicine 2010, or the research article, post-marketing, surveillance of methadone and buprenorphine in the United States, Kappa, when that's Cooper. Department of Epidemiology, Healing School of Global Public Health. So, uh, the objective of this is to provide perspective on the debate of the relative safety of these two drugs. What should be known on this topic are these methadone and sublingual buprenorphine are both used to treat opioid dependence in the United States, methadone but not sublingual buprenorphine is also approved by FDA to treat pain. And the number of methadone poisoning, treat, poisoning uh, treat related deaths are reported on deaths uh, such as increased from 740, 754 in 1992 to 2300 in 9, 2002, uh, more than 200% change. So these deaths are from methadone used for pain as well as addiction. The state-level studies suggesting that relatively few deaths are from methadone prescribed for addiction treatment. The number of buprenorphine poisoning related deaths in the United States is currently unknown. And then the, as we talked about it, and methadone is diverted as evidence by data from drug diversion authorities and the, and both the and FDA have ex expressed concerns about methadone diversion and poisoning resulted in restricted distribu distribution of the 40 milligram dispersive dosage uh, since uh, 2007. And uh, the increased use of methadone in pain management has paralleled increases in the medical uh, consequences associated with overdose in many observational studies in the United States. Which also holds uh, true for other opioid pain reliefs, relievers, although likely to a lesser extent. And, they, and 
regarding uh, method and concern about QT prolongation, the uh, TDP, ventric arrhythmias, also exists. For, or exists. And the clinical experience with buprenorphine for addiction treatment in the U.S. Uh, has only occurred since the passage of the Drug Abuse Treatment Act of 2000. And since 2002, buprenorphine has been approved for the management of opioid dependence. And the, um, and the sublingual formula, there, there are two formations for tablet sublingual formula, uh, subluxone, which include, uh, contains naloxone also, and subtrix are uh, primarily intended for outpatient use when prescribed for the treatment of opioid dependence. Um, on the contrary, uh, the, num the number of buprenorphine that is uh, prescribed for addiction has been increased, and the, on the other hand, the methadone for uh, pain control has been increased. Uh, evidence from uh, France suggests that large-scale free access to buprenorphine accompanied by harm reduction measures can have dramatic effect on overdose mortality, crime, incidence of HIV infection uh, with relatively low mortality from buprenorphine compared with methadone when, calling, when accounting for the medical use. And so let me go on to the, uh, the objectives. Uh, despite, informa despite information from other countries, little has been published on the relative experience with buprenorphine methadone in the United States during the 2000s, particularly related to diversion. To provide a perspective on the debate of the relative safety of buprenorphine methadone, in this paper we present data. They present data on post-marketing surveillance for these two opioids. Okay. And the methods are using routers and using data from four component programs, which includes a drug diversion program and a key inform program. Increased uh, leading professionally in the field of drug abuse, such as clinician, epidemiologist, treatment counselors, and the poison center program, uh, 43 of the 60 U.S. poison centers. And uh, the last is uh, opioid treatment program. They uh, the participating in my seven treatment programs in 2007. So it's uh, the limitation here. This no using buprenorphine for buprenorphine program is not included. Mm. Let me jump into the results. Okay. Uh, as shown in table one, between 2003 and 2007, there was steady increase in the rate of abuse, misuse, and diversion both method and buprenorphine reported to the writers. Mm. And uh, looking at table one, the relative, the relative rates of abuse, misuse, and the diversion were consistently higher for methadone than for buprenorphine in all the four programs. For relative to buprenorphine, late per uh, 1,000 URDD per quarter showed the methadone to have a poorer safety profile in three programs. Hmm. I'll explain later. And uh, looking at figure 2, it's 
per uh, 1,000 ULDD per quarter. So after accounting for availability, methadone has higher, still higher rate of abuse, misuse, and diversion in the three programs for most of the study period, while initially higher in the key informal programs. I'm looking at figure uh, three. Uh, during the study period, Ladder System Portland Center received more than 7,000 calls for methadone and more than 1,000 calls for buprenorphine. For methadone, 3,500 calls were associated with major life threatening, threatening events or events requiring medical attention, moderate effect, versus 288 calls for buprenorphine. The numbers of exposures requiring medical attention correspond to about 47% and 26% of all calls for each of you received during the study period for methadone and buprenorphine respectively. Further exploring the more severe medical consequences of methadone exposure, 140 deaths associated with methadone intentional exposures were reported to rather system for the centers between 2003 and 2010, 2007, and five for buprenorphine. However, a causal connection is not made between the presence of the opioid and death in poison center data. And to further explore, explore the relative contribution of the opioids from the two different indications, we they examine the formation type giving rise to case in radar system program during the study period. We see table two. The most striking Finding is that 73% of methadone cases reporting drug diversion were tablets. So the formulation, this is the formulation used for outpatient pain management. Let's go on to the discussion. This analysis of rather system data come from the three. Uh, there, there was sorry, there was an increase in the unintended consequence associated with outpatient use of both methadone and buprenorphine between 2003 and 2007. Accounting for a proxy drug uh, exposure, um, I'm sorry. Okay, one of the important findings of their analysis is the stability of the outcomes associated with buprenorphine and methadone among poison center calls. Buprenorphine was consistently, consistently associated with less severe acute consequences after exposure compared with methadone. While there are pharmacologic rationales for this observation, they present here the first analysis to compare these two drugs in root, routine medical practice that links individual exposure to medical outcomes in the United States. Okay, next one. Um, the looking at uh, figure two, the previous treatment experience play a key role in determining whether patients receive methadone or buprenorphine, suggesting an explanation why rates of non-medical use of buprenorphine and methadone are different between the key informal programs. It's because many buprenorphine prescribers actually. Compared with the opioid treatment program, among the key informants, many of whom are different marketing for prescribers.
And uh, studies in other countries have suggested lower mortality rates for patients on buprenorphine mm -hmm. compared with methadone for the management of opioid dependence. And the overwhelming majority, 85% uh, of poison center calls involving buprenorphine or for the buprenorphine for uh, formulation containing naloxone, mm -hmm. mm, which is suboxone, reflecting, reflecting its relative market share to subtaxin in the United States during the study period. So they cannot conclude from this data whether the observed relative safety of buprenorphine compared with methadone is a function of buprenorphine itself or its combination with naloxone. So pharmacologic studies suggest that the safety aspect is driven by the buprenorphine component of suboxone and not naloxone, although this is an area of active research and debate. In conclusion, the abuse Misuse and diversion of both buprenorphine and methadone were increasing through 2007, while these post-marketing surveillance data suggest a better safety profile for buprenorphine compared with methadone. But these data must be interpreted with caution. Uh, the use of methadone for outpatient management for chronic pain concurrent with the use of buprenorphine for addiction treatment in primary care have paralleled and uh, the increased misuse, abuse, and diversion of these two medications. Thank you. All right, yeah, no, very good. So yeah, there's the differences between these two drugs are, are, are both of them are obviously are used for medical management of opiate use disorder. Uh, methadone sort of replaces the opiate, and the more you take, the more likely you are to have side effects. There's no ceiling effect to methadone. And people who abuse methadone, maybe abusing it to get high or higher, than they got with their regular dose, and there's more use of methadone, probably inappropriately so for chronic pain management because it's really, really inexpensive drug at this point in the United States. On the flip side, buprenorphine, especially when made as suboxone, which is uh, essentially is an abuse deterrent formulation, has Narcan in the middle of it. Narcan's really not very active orally, but if you try to crush it and melt it and shoot it up, the Narcan's gonna prevent the suboxone from doing anything. And people who may abuse or divert buprenorphine on the street are more likely not using it to get high, but using it to self-treat their opiate withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So they're like, I'll take another tablet because I'm going on withdrawal. They're not going to take enough because of its ceiling effect, because of its abuse deterrent effect. Probably not going to take enough to kill, you know, die as a result of it. So the, at least in the poison center data, we only have five deaths from buprenorphine compared to 140 deaths for uh, methadone in the same time period. So if we were to choose, it would seem easier to put people on a buprenorphine as far as medical management for their substance opiate abuse disorder due to a better safety profile and less likelihood that it's going to get diverted for um, sort of to get high uh, purposes. Um, and I think that trend is increasing and part of the inability to do that, I think early on in the early days of this with the the, you still have a need to go through this eight-hour course to prescribe it, and there's a limit to total number of patients in your practice you can use, though that's been liberalized. And there's certainly been some bills around the country in different states to increase access to suboxone or buprenorphine and other formulations, but not necessarily the drug made as suboxone. So essentially that's the last leg of the three-legged stool of prevention and uh, treatment and uh, 
uh, try to decrease the number of opiate deaths we see in this country, which still seem to go up. Uh, sort of the take-home messages is that people intent on abusing and drugs or hurting themselves will find an alternative method. If we create an abuse deterrent or a block to obtaining one drug or prescription deferral program, they'll go somewhere else to find another drug to somehow use. But there's probably headway and improvement we can make overall in prevention for children, adolescents, older people, and treatment for those who are already in the abuse disorder. And the big take-home message, I think, for the emergency department, which many all of us work in emergency medicine, is try not to start people on opioids if they really have a reasonably trivial uh, pain uh, event. You know, if you sprain your ankle, you don't need opioids. If you have a sore throat, you don't need opioids. If you have a sinus infection, you probably don't need opioids, I mean, quite frankly. And you need to be able to communicate effectively with the patients that, you know, if you start down this road, the chances are increasingly, according to the data, that you could become addicted and move up to opioid abuse or even heroin abuse, which is the ultimate substitution of, of modalities. So I think with that, we'll wrap it up, unless there's any questions from any one around the table here or uh, remotely. And not seeing any, I will put this recording online, and I will see everyone again next time we meet. So thanks, everyone, for reading their articles and a coherent presentation on opioids. Thank you.